morning, church. Great to see you. Welcome to Union Chapel. I'm Greg Paris, and this is our weekend to emphasize serving. I, today, I want to talk about living with purpose because it's a direct connection to serving. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 25. This is a, a parable of Jesus. And if you don't have your Bibles, we'll project the words on the screen. And it's a very powerful story that he tells and really self-explanatory. You'll get the point. So it, our custom is to stand to hear God's word. So as you're able, thank you for doing that. Jesus said, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more bags. So also the one who had two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good, faithful. Servant, you have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then... You should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him. Give it to the one who has ten. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? <laughs> Now, did you get it? Did you get the point? Get the message? Do we even need a sermon? If you don't understand the point of this, of this parable, we're going to form a special group. It's a slower group for you, and you will be able to then understand what it means. But in the meantime, I think you got it. So be inspired by this important parable. You may be seated. Thank you so much. I realize I'm preaching to the choir this weekend because so many of you are so faithful in your serving and, and your willingness to share of the resources God has given you. And so we, we have above average ratios in all these ways at Union Chapel. So thank you. And I realize then that much of what I'll have to say today does not pertain to you necessarily, but I do want to encourage and inspire all of us to consider these important ideas of living with purpose. Let me start by saying the most impoverished parts of our own city in any place in the United States, most impoverished parts, it's not an economic problem. Hear me now. It's a purpose problem. People who get up without purpose will become angry. They'll become frustrated, disillusioned, and sometimes even violent. When you come to believe your life is meaningless and without value, you will dissolve into dysfunction and destructive patterns. 
So when you think about people who are on the margins of our culture living in the most difficult places in the United States, it's not primarily about economics. It's not about education. It's not about culture or being on the wrong side of town. It is a, it is a purpose problem. Look at this uh, statement from Dr. Miles Monroe. He said, where purpose is not known, abuse is inevitable. Where purpose is not known, abuse is inevitable. Leads to the first point. It's on your outline. It's this, know your purpose. Know your purpose. You show me anyone who is abusing anything, and I will conclude they don't know the purpose of it. For example, a man who abuses a woman does not know the value or purpose of a woman. A woman who abuses her man does not know the value and purpose of a man. People who will abuse marriage do not understand the value and meaning and purpose of marriage. If I grab one of these microphones off the stand behind me and I start driving nails with it, you will quickly conclude, he doesn't know the purpose of a microphone. I'm abusing it. Abnormal use. Abuse. Show me someone addicted to drugs or alcohol and I'll show you someone who does not know the purpose of their lives. People who abuse their own lives do not know the value and meaning and purpose of their lives. We're learning in our culture because addiction is so prevalent that it's usually approached with psychological therapies or support therapies or medical therapies, and all those have their place, of course. They're important. But let me just make this point. You help someone get a God-given purpose for their lives, and they will set the drugs down by themselves. A God-given purpose. When you don't know the purpose of your life, you will abuse your life. God wants you to have purpose. God wants you to understand your purpose and know your purpose. Some years ago now, Pastor Rick Warren wrote a book, a bestseller called The Purpose Driven Life. It has sold over 30 million copies. It's been translated into 86 different languages. And I have put in your bulletin on the outline there the five primary purposes that Pastor Warren concludes is the purpose of every person. All of us have these five God-given purposes for our lives. Number one, you were planned for God's pleasure. If you are not actively engaged in the worship of God, then you are outside of God's best plan and purpose for your life. Number two, you were formed for God's family, formed for fellowship, meaningful community. If you are not connected with people in the context of a local fellowship, a local church, the family of God, then you are living outside of the primary plan and purpose of God for your life. Number three, you were created to become like Christ. You're, you're, you're created to become a follower, a fully devoted follower, a disciple of Jesus. And so if you're not employing the disciplines necessary to grow your character and allow the word and the spirit of God to cultivate in you Christ's character and nature, you're outside of God's primary plan and purpose. Number four, you were shaped for serving God. That's called ministry. We call all the work that we do, like the Serving Expo that we're promoting this morning, we call all of this ministry. Within the church, it's called ministry. And all of us have a special shape for ministry. Your passions, your experiences, your, your personality, your natural giftedness, your talents, all of these things create your shape, and you are wired and qualified then to do specific ministry in the body of Christ. And if you're not actually engaging in ministry, to one another in the body of Christ, you're outside of God's best plan and purpose for your life. Number five, you were made for a mission. So we call ministry the work we do inside of the church and mission the work that we do outside of the church. And everyone has a purpose of fulfilling this great mandate to go into the world and offer Christ. 
And so mission is the work that we do beyond the borders of the church into the larger world. These five purposes, it's God's design and plan and purpose for all of us to embrace these five things. Now, in subsequent years, Pastor Warren also added two chapters to his book. And the two chapters are what he believes are the two primary reasons why people do not live out their God-given purpose. The two greatest barriers, obstacles to living your God-given purpose, these two chapters. The one chapter he wrote was on envy, and the second one was on people-pleasing. Envy and jealousy keep you from God's purpose, and people-pleasing keep you from God's purpose. Let me give you uh, an irrefutable truth of life. You ready? This is absolutely true. You can't argue that this isn't true. This is irrefutable truth. Here's the truth. You ready? All men are not created equal. All men are not created equal. Mm -mm. No. Now, we were all created with equal value and worth in the eyes of God. Yes, we should all be equally treated. Yes, yes, that's true. We should all have equal rights. Yes, yes, of course. But otherwise, no. We are very much unequal because there are some people who are physically superior to other people. There are some people who are mentally superior to other people. There are some folks who are just naturally superior to other people. Let me illustrate it this way. When I was 18 years old, I, if you had asked me when I was 18, I suffered at 18 the same thing that everyone suffers at 18, and that is you haven't lived long enough to really have the perspective you need to really function well in life. You just haven't learned enough yet. You haven't been alive long enough yet. And so when I was 18, if you had asked me, are all people created equal, I would have said, absolutely. All people are equal, unequivocally equal. Now, I grew up, and part of my orientation growing up is I got a lot of my esteem from athletics. So I was, I was good with physical activity, and I played a lot of sports. And, and by the time I was 18 years old, there hadn't been a competition or an event or a game that I couldn't compete in. You know, I just, till 18, all those years, all those games, I was competitive. You know, I had a chance to win that game until I was 18. And I was at Valparaiso University, and I uh, experienced my first college basketball game. And the first college basketball game I played at Valparaiso was against Notre Dame. And Notre Dame at the time was ranked number three in the nation preseason. And there was a freshman, another 18-year-old on Notre Dame's team that year, named Adrian Dantley. Now, some of you are too young to know who Adrian Dantley is, but Adrian Dantley eventually scored 30,000 points in the NBA, was Rookie of the Year in the NBA, was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame in 2008. Who knew this was Adrian Dantley? He was just another 18-year-old kid. I'd seen lots of guys my age growing up, and so I just assumed we were all fairly equal. But the first 20 seconds of my college basketball career, I learned <laughs> that all men are not created equal. I found myself guarding Adrian Dantley, and then he did something to me that I had never seen before. In fact, I didn't think, I would have argued it wasn't possible. But he did something to me that was so stunning, it was so shocking. I can remember it as if it were this morning. When, when it, after it happened to me, I was so stunned, I remember running down to the other side of the floor and I could not feel my face. I had gone numb. Because my parrot you talk about a paradigm shift. My paradigm got shifted. 
got crumbled because I didn't think a human being could do that with their body. And he had done it to me. The first thought I had at that moment was, what's a person like me doing in a place like this? Because I knew, I realized I'm out of place. I don't belong here. I got nothing for this. And so, so I learned very quickly, and really in a few seconds, that all men are not created equal. Now, you fast forward four years, and I've been playing Division I college basketball for four years. I have perspective now. I have a worldview that's a whole lot different. So when I'm 22 years old, and I'm playing against Larry Bird, and he drops 42 points right on top of my head and my teammate's head in a game, I wasn't shocked. It didn't, didn't phase me a bit. I just, the only thought I had was, I think he may be better than they said he was. <laughs> He's pretty good. <laughs> now, here's my point. This is what I want to say. Therefore, because all men are not created equal, not even close, trust me. Therefore, you have to be happy with what you have and learn how to work it. You have to work with what you have. Turn to your neighbor, the person right next to you, say, you got to work with what you have. Work with what you have. You have to work with what you have. Tell them. You got to work with what you have. See, we live in a generation that tells us that if, we, if I don't have what someone else has, then you're not significant or you're not important. But the Bible says comparing yourselves amongst yourselves is not wise. It's not a good idea. And so the reason I don't want... The reason I don't compare myself with other preachers, for example, is because I don't, want, I don't want their ministry or their frustration. I don't have their stuff. I don't have their capacity. I don't have their gifts. I don't have their abilities. It'll just lead me to nowhere. See, the, 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 I don't compare myself to any other person anywhere. That's not wise. It's not a good idea. Wish I had their wife. Wish I had their abilities. Wish I had their house. Wish I had their car. Wish I had their income. No, 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 no. It's a bad idea. The best way to go through life is in relationship with your own potential. Think, listen to that. I want to become the best person that I can be, the best husband, the best father, the best grandfather, the best pastor that I can, believe, can be. Let me put this on the screen for you. Just see how this sets with you. Nobility is not defined by how you compare with others. Nobility is defined by how you're becoming better than your former self. So the competition is with your own potential. If, I, if I'm focused on you, if I'm just comparing myself to you, I may, I may be going way beyond where you are, but waste my potential. If you're just comparing yourself to me, you may, you may go way past me, but waste your potential. You may have great potential. Just a reminder that God hasn't given us all the same stuff. The Bible says to each one is given a measure of faith. You know, there's some people in the world today, they're, they're trusting God for lunch. Oh, God, please let me have lunch. There are other folks who are believing God for a job. It's another measure of faith. There are some folks who are believing that that seven-figure deal will close tomorrow on Monday. Another measure of faith. There are different measures of grace. There, there are some of you who have lived in a marriage that most people could not have survived. But you have, you have grace for it. Some of you have raised children that have been very difficult. Maybe they're special needs kids or special challenge kind of kids. And you've been able to do it. And the reason is because you have grace for it. You have the grace for it. 
So we have different measures of faith, different measures of grace, different measures of gifts. Jesus told a parable of the talents that we just rehearsed this morning in Matthew 25. He gave one guy five bags of gold, another guy two bags of gold, another guy one bag of gold according to their ability. And you saw how it unpacked. Here's the challenge. You must not look at your measure of stuff and come to believe that you don't have enough to do anything with it. Remember the one talent guy compared himself with the two and five talent people and decided his one wouldn't matter, so he buried it and the master took it from him. He lost what he had because he didn't employ the one talent that God had given him. So I want to drive this point home. It's point number two on your outline. Write this down. You have to work with what you have. You have to work with what you have. David didn't have much to work with, but he took a little leather sling and, and, a, and a handful of stones, and he learned how to work it. And one day he killed a lion with that sling, and another day he killed a bear, and one day he killed a Goliath. And working with what he had got him all the way to the palace as the king of Israel. So you have to work with what you have. If all you have is a brain, then you should work it. If all you have is a handsome face, you should work it. That's all I'm going to say about physical things. If, if all you have is a little intercessory prayer gift, you need to work it. If all you have is capacity to serve, you know, serve behind the scenes, work it. If all you have is a little musical ability, work it. If all you have is the gift of administration and no one even notices what you do, you need to work it. Or hospitality, you need to work it. Or mercy or helps, you love working with children or with youth, or you like to just serve people in, in practical ways, you need to work it. Take whatever it is you have and work it. So well, I'm only a one talent guy. I see all these two and five talent people all around me and I just don't feel like what I have is worth anything. Mm. You gotta work it. Whatever it is you have, work it. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 18. Because of uh, laziness, the building decays. Through idleness of hands, the house leaks. Now, again, don't take this the wrong way because I know who I'm talking to today. I know, I know your quality, but, but I, need to, I need you to hear this. We have to break laziness off of our culture. Laziness in America goes across generational lines. It goes across ethnic lines, racial lines, and cultural lines. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but the lazy actually despise the diligent. I want what you... I want what you have, but I don't want to have to work like you did to obtain it. I want what you want. I want what you have, but I don't want to have to work for it. There are only two things in the world that drives the philosophy of socialism. Socialism got a little traction in last year's presidential cycle. And when one of the candidates who is nearly a socialist emerged, people were poo-pooing that at first. Oh, you see, he's a socialist. He wouldn't have a, church, a chance in America. And, and by the end of the cycle, socialism hadn't gotten traction. Let me tell you, there are only two kinds of people who prefer socialism. One kind of person is the person who lusts for political power. Political elites like socialism because the bigger the government, the more power comes to them, the more money comes to them. And so people who lust for power like the philosophy of socialism. The only other group of people who actually embrace the philosophy of socialism in any meaningful way are people who are lazy. I want what you want, I just don't want to have to work to get it. I don't want to have to sacrifice like you have 
to get it. And so we have in this country now these issues that divide people, issues that should never divide people. And so we have these terms that are, that are used in derision and, and sarcasm and judgmentalism and, and all kinds of uh, the impugning of character. And you say, one percenters. And when, people, when you hear the phrase, that he's one of the one percenters, she's one of the one percenters, you know, upper income levels, as if there's something wrong with that. As if there's something inherently evil about being a one percenter. There isn't. Did you know that there are tens of millions of millionaires in the United States? People, when you take their assets minus their liabilities, the number is more than a million dollars. They're millionaires. Did you know there are tens of millions of people like that in the United States? There are millionaires scattered all across this room today. What? Oh, yeah. And almost all of them, with, virtu- with very few exceptions, are people who have done the right things and lived the right way and embraced the right values. And they have earned money and they have saved money and they have invested money and they've done it over a long period of disciplined living. They know how to, they know how to earn, they know how to save, they know how to invest, they know how to give. And you do that for three or four decades, you'll be a millionaire. Sometimes multiple millionaire. It's math. And so in America, we go around pointing fingers at people like this and say, you're bad and you're evil and you're wrong. You must have gotten your money by ill-gotten gains. You must have ripped somebody off. You may, must have oppressed somebody who's poor in order to get there. You need to stop that. Stop thinking that. Stop saying that. Because for the vast majority of cases, that's not true at all. Not even close. It's wrong to say it. It's wrong to believe it. It's wrong to think it. One percenters. The haves and have-nots. Let me clue you in on something. Here's a newsflash. There have always been people who have and people who have not. Income inequality. Like this is the highest virtue now in American society that everyone's income should be equal. Income inequality has existed forever and will continue to exist. Stop impugning people who have actually embraced what it takes to be successful and stop complaining about it. It's wrong. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, said the lazy despise the diligent. And the worst thing you can do to the diligent is strap them to someone who's lazy. Our verse from Ecclesiastes 10.18, where it says the lazy person, their house goes into decay. The word decay means to be humiliated or brought low. The person who lacks discipline usually ends up living a life on a level far beneath their potential. I observe many people who want their lives to be better but very few people who are willing to take the necessary steps in discipline and industriousness to achieve those goals. Your dream is only a pipe dream. Your dream can become a nightmare if you're never willing to put feet to it. You remember remember Naomi, this woman uh, in the Old Testament? There's a book called Ruth in the Old Testament there, just tucked in there. And the story of Naomi, she had a husband and two sons, and, and life was tough in Bethlehem, Judea, and so they moved to Moab. And they lived in Moab for 10 years. Now, the word, the name Moab literally means lazy and idle. So for 10 years, they're in the land of lazy and idle. 
And in the meantime, Naomi's husband dies and her two sons die. The sons had taken Moabite women as wives. And now here is Naomi and her two daughters-in-law who are left. And Naomi decides she's going to go back to Bethlehem, Judah. So she says to her two daughters-in-law, you stay here. These are your people. You're Moabites. And this is your culture. Just stay here. But one of them, Ruth, you remember the story, she refused to leave her her mother-in-law, Naomi. And this famous speech, where you go, I will go. Your, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And so Naomi's like, a, like gum stuck to, Ruth is like gum stuck to Naomi's shoe. And, and so she can't get rid of her. And so she takes her back to Bethlehem, Judah. And they get back to Bethlehem, Judah, and it's harvest time. And there's a guy there by the name of Boaz, and he owns all the fields in the area. He's one of the one percenters. Now, we don't impugn Boaz because he's in the Bible, even though he's one of the one percenters. We like Boaz because he's in the Bible, and he turns out to be a descendant of Jesus himself. We think Boaz is great. He's a one percenter. Do you know what the name Boaz means? It means success. (laughs) And so Naomi and Ruth have to leave lazy and idle and go to the place where they can find success. And Naomi says to her pretty little daughter-in-law, Ruth, go out there in the field and scoop up some of the grain that the harvesters are missing. Maybe Boaz will notice. And Boaz did notice. And one thing led to another. Now watch this. If you're not willing to come out of the land of Moab, lazy and idle, then you will never be in a position for Boaz's success to find you. Boaz is not going to come out and find you. You have to leave lazy and idle and go where success is found. Some people that I know, and maybe it doesn't apply to anyone here, but you're waiting for the great job to come and find you. You're waiting for the right opportunity to come knocking at your door. You're waiting for some fabulous ministry influence to come and sweep you up. Instead, you experience humiliation and are brought low because you will not engage the diligent application of the qualities that God has given you. You won't take what you've been given and work it in a diligent, industrious way. That leads me to the third point because I need to finish. And you want to write this down. Here's some advice to you if you're you're confused about your purpose and you're wandering around in life. Look for wise friends. Look for wise friends. King Solomon, the wisest, wisest man who ever lived, was quoted in Proverbs 13, 20. It says, he who runs with the wise shall be wise, but he who makes the companion of fools shall be destroyed. See, the best thing you can do is start hanging with people who are pursuing their God-given purpose. One of the best things you can do if you're confused about your purpose in life is go sign up to serve somewhere in the church and hang out with people, join a team of people who are actually on the right track, who are finding success. Great people get together and they talk about ideas and the pursuit of successful things. Weak people hang together and talk about how angry they are at people who are successful. So look for some wise friends. Another definition of the word decay from our verse in Ecclesiastes 10.18, the lazy's house will decay. It not only means to be humiliated or brought low, it also means to suck out entirely. Decay, suck out entirely. Here's what we know. Lazy people drain the diligent of their energy. So it will require certain disciplines to accomplish your purpose. 
Too many people give the most time to people who add the least amount of value. Too much time is spent with people who suck the life out of you. If you surround yourself with people who are constantly drawing from you and you're making withdrawals from your life, you're never going to find the success that God calls you to. On the contrary, if you'll surround yourself with people who will pick up your vision, pick up your passion, pick up your sense of destiny, and run with it, then you can do great things. I've made a career of this. For 40 years now, let me tell you a pattern in my life. I have always associated myself with and inclined myself to people who are wiser than me, smarter than me, more devout than me, more passionate than me, better than me. I've always done this. I, I ask them to volunteer. I ask them to do leadership. I ask them to join my staff. For 40 years, I've surrounded myself with people who are better than me out in front of me. And you're looking at a person who is successful because I'm wise enough to pick who I'm going to hang with. It's not rocket science. I'm not afraid of, I'm not intimidated by people who are better than me. In fact, I, I reach for them. Come and stand next to me because it'll make me better. This is good. I'm enjoying this. See, Jesus wouldn't tolerate these kind of relationships either. He had a bunch of people following him and they were hangers on. They were groupies, Jesus groupies. You can imagine and he's got this big crowd of people following him. They're not from here, but wherever he went, the same people were following him. Finally, one day he turned and he said to them, listen, unless you're willing to eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And it shocked them. You know, it was a little creepy. We can unpack what Jesus meant and what, what they heard him say. But the Bible says they all began to leave him. In fact, they all left. All the groupies left. And Jesus only had the disciples left. He turned to them. He said, everyone else is gone. Why don't you leave? You know, the Bible says from that point forward, many followed him not. Now, you didn't think about this or know this about Jesus, but Jesus wouldn't tolerate people who were constantly sucking life out of him. This happened to him everywhere he went, and he had to recharge his batteries, but he wasn't going to have just a bunch of people hanging out, not doing anything. Finally, John chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Look at this on the screen. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Did you see that? Every branch that does not bear fruit, he either takes away, cuts it off, and throws it away, or he prunes it so it will bear more fruit. So what is he saying? He's saying work it or waste it. Use it or lose it. You're pruned if you do, you're pruned if you don't. You've never heard that phrase before, have you? It's right in the Bible. Think about it. If you're not doing anything, God says, look, you're, no, you're worthless. You just lop you off. You're pruned. And if you're, and if you're actually doing something, God says, I like that. That person's bearing fruit. Let me prune that some more. Can I get a witness for pruning from my wife? She, we know about pruning. Prune if you do, prune if you don't. 
Now, verses 3 to 5, look at this. You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. So abide in me and I in him, that person bears much fruit. Without me, you can't do anything. So there it is. So abiding in Christ, connected with him and connected with his people. Verses 6 to 8, and I'll be done. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. They gather them and throw them in the fire. They're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. That is a strong promise, friends. Do you see that? You stay connected to the vine. You stay connected to Jesus and his people and you, and you work with what you have. You can ask whatever you want and God will give it to you. Man, I'm, see, I'm receiving that right now for myself. I'm receiving that right now. I'm receiving that, God. You know, you know what I need to be more fruitful. You know what I need to be more fruitful, and I'm asking right now. That's good. I like that. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and be my disciples. See that last phrase, and be my disciples. Listen to me. Jesus took 12 guys 12 average guys. There wasn't a two to, or five talent guy among them. They're all just average, one talent guys. Jesus had to go out of the original pool to find the Apostle Paul. Now, he's a five talent guy, but he wasn't one of the original guys. Some, there's a handful of five talent people in, in the room, in the church. They're not very many. Most of us are just one, one or two. We're just average folks. Jesus took those average guys. He called them disciples. He didn't, he didn't call them holy. He didn't call them anointed. He didn't call them powerful. He called them disciples. And the root for the word disciple is discipline. And he took those 12 guys and he disciplined them. And he worked with them. And he showed them how important it is to take what you have and to work it. And you know what those guys did? Without the benefit of social media and the powerful internet, those 12 disciplined men evangelized the known world. Those 12 guys turned the world upside down because they took what they have and they worked it. And they worked it. So what about you? What about you? What do you have? What do you have? Are you working it? Here's an, a beautiful opportunity for you to, to re-up or if you're not working what you have and you're stumbling around for purpose and you, you don't want to mean, know what it means to have a fruitful life, purposeful life in Christ, this is a great opportunity. As you're leaving today, stop by the expo and just sign up to do something. And if it doesn't work, then try something else. Try until you find your fit and God will use it to make your life more meaningful and more purposeful. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your ways. Help us to be wise as we take what you have given us and in a disciplined way, work it. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.